How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. Retired U.S. Army officer, Senator Brian Birdwell in the state of Texas, District 22, has been a friend of mine for over 17 years. Brian Birdwell is a survivor of the 9-11 incident, today known as Patriot's Day. In tandem with our study in 1 Peter on enduring suffering and persecution, we wanted to invite Senator Birdwell to tell you his story about 9-11 and also to weave this in a real-life account of how do you continue to deal with pain and suffering, disappointment, tragedy, and injustice. I think you're going to love hearing from Senator and Lieutenant Colonel retired Brian Birdwell as he tells his story and how we press on as believers in Christ in a broken and fallen world. That moment, I mean, when you're 15 to 20 yards from an 80-ton jet coming through the building at 530 miles an hour with over 3,000 gallons of jet fuel, um, you love to tell about it, not because the United States Army made me the toughest guy in that building, but because the toughest man ever walked this earth 2,000 years ago sits at the right hand of the Father, had something else in mind. The morning of September 11th, I stepped out, went to the men's restroom, and took care of business. I'm seven or eight steps out when Flight 77 has deliberately crashed at the Pentagon at the intersection of the fourth quarter and the E-ring at about a 45 degree angle. Thrown around, tossed around like a rag doll inside, set ablaze, the black putrid smoke that I'm breathing in, the aerosolized jet fuel that I've inhaled, and the temperature of what I'm breathing in. Uh, it's somewhere between 300 and 350 degrees. You can see flesh hanging off the arms. My eyes are already beginning to swell closed. Got no hair. The front of my shirt is still intact. My access badge and my name tag are melted, but still hanging, covered in the black soot and the scorched blood. My arms are skinned alive. My pants are gone. I only have my leather belt and a portion of my pants that are an immediate area of the belt, with the flame consuming me before I expect to pass. It's really the definition of terrorism because it combines two things. One, receipt of a life-threatening injury, being set on fire the way I was, but combined with the blackness and the darkness and the inability to navigate. Just moments before, I was in a hallway that I was exceedingly familiar with. I knew exactly what direction I was going. And in that next moment after the impact of the aircraft and being set on fire, 
of sustaining a life-threatening injury with no way to escape, no way to know which is to safety, which way is to danger. That darkness and that blackness, um, that's what really captures your heart, that panic. You meet those two circumstances. And those moments seem to last an eternity. And I did what we in the military are never trained to do, and that's surrender. And I came to that realization that I was no longer struggling to survive. But I'd stepped over that line from the desire and that zest for living that we're all created with to that acceptance of my death and recognizing that this was how the Lord was going to call me home. I just screamed out in a very loud voice, Jesus, I'm coming to see you. That feeling would not come, I would lay there and thinking, okay, Lord, come on, let's get on with this thing. But the Lord had other purposes. I used the wall that I've been blown up against to, to get up. So I'm staggering down the hallway, four men, Bill McKinnon, Roy Wallace, John Davies, and Chuck Knobloch will come out of the B-ring door area, and Roy can see me, sees me coming out of the smoke, staggering down the hallway. And in their haste to pick me up, Bill, Roy, Chuck, and John each grab a limb and give that first exertion to pick me up, but I don't come with them. Um, similar to that paraffin or that hot wax that you would stick your hands in and and then after the wax cools, it'll just peel right off. And, and that's what happens when Bill, Roy, Chuck, and John each grab a limb and go to pick me up. They pull chunks off of me, and that's my first insight into the pain thresholds that are ahead of me as a critical burn survivor. I begin screaming at them to leave me alone. And in my heart and mind, I know I'm telling them to leave me there to die they don't do that. Chuck actually rolls me over on the left-hand side and essentially the four of them shake hands with each other, grasping each other's hands or wrists with my body weight resting on their arms, acting as a litter to carry me through. I'm yelling at them to put me down, to leave me alone, and I'm yelling at Bill. Because I recognize Bill, but Bill doesn't recognize me. I'm trembling violently and uncontrollably. And in all my years of the triage processes, take care of those that are most injured first, most critical. And Dr. Baxter treats me first, and that tells me how serious I am. We get to Georgetown University Hospital, and on the other side of the Potomac River, across the Key Bridge, it was a lot of intensity, a lot of voice commands, a lot of directives, clearly a lot of gravity. Normally in an emergency room situation, it's airway breathing circulation. Once those three things have been stabilized, you're evacuated to specialized care. But more importantly, uh, when Flight 77 makes impact with the Pentagon, as the third aircraft crashed that day inside the White House Situation Room, Vice President Cheney turns to Secretary Mineta, Secretary of Transportation, and says, shut down all airspace in the United States. And that includes medevac helicopters. 
Dr. Williams will not just do his best to stabilize me. He'll begin the debridement, the escharotomy, the excisions, the very ghastly things that have to be done to somebody that's been so seriously and critically burned. The finality and permanency of life that I thought I was facing inside the Pentagon, I'm now in an emergency room realizing that whatever I do here may be my final acts. So I told Dr. Williams I wanted to take the wedding ring off and because normally jewelry has to be cut off the burn survivor, whether it's a ring or a bracelet or necklace, if that's the part of the body burned as the expansion from the swelling of the body occurs but the jewelry doesn't swell, it becomes a tourniquet. Judith Rogers, one of the nurses in Georgetown that had answered the all hands on deck call to the emergency room just for the ring as my body is cooled like that steak you take off the grill and as Judith gives that tug, degloves the flesh that's, there's exposed bone after she pulls it off, there's blood streaming out of the base of my hand and only the Lord can hear me scream in my mind. I'm concentrating on the dignity and the finality of the death that I know that I'm dying. And saying goodbye to my wife and my son for the symbolism of that wedding ring. Mel will eventually arrive at Georgetown. Knowing that she was there was critical to me and that more than anything else, she was living up to the wedding vows that she had taken 14 years earlier. And I'm proud of her. And then I asked for the hospital chaplain, Chaplain Cirillo, would you say that final prayer it's just a prayer that says, okay, Lord, you're in charge here. If you guide Dr. Williams' hand and the team here at the George Center Emergency Room and I survive, we'll salute that flag and move out with that mission. But if you've brought me here and your decision is to call me into eternity silently and quietly under the care and compassion of my fellow Americans, we'll salute that flag too. And it was with the strength, not of a soldier, but of my faith in Christ that I could look at Dr. Williams when that prayer's over with and very laboredly tell him, let's get on with it. Resting in the comfort of who's the commander in chief of life. General Peake very wisely asks Mel, has Matthew been up here to see his father? And Mel says, no, not yet. And General Peake says, you need to get Matthew up here. Your husband's dying. And his son needs to come say goodbye before that happens. Matt would make that visit. And in 20 plus years of military service, the hardest thing I've ever been asked to do is say goodbye to my son. I remember watching Matt come in, and he came into the right-hand side. I'm wrapped like a mummy. I've got a tube in every orifice in my body, and I mean every. I can't speak because of the trach and the feeding tubes and other things, and, but I can see him walk in, and he just mouths, speaks to me, says, I love you, Dad. And I could sit there and mouth back to him. 
how much I loved him. And because of the opportunity I'd had to say goodbye to my son, in that moment I was having my it is finished moment. And as hard as that was, to physically and emotionally say goodbye to my son, I think about how difficult it must have been forgot the father to say goodbye to the son for three days. Having known the perfection of heaven, in my death I would be separated from my son, but joined to my heavenly father. To Christ's death, he was to be separated from the perfection of heaven and the relationship he had with the father. Time will allow me to forgive. In fact, it's, uh, I can't say that that's happened. Uh, I couldn't look you in the eye and say, yeah, I've forgiven and, and moved on. But I can tell you that Mel and I accentuate positive of not only having our lives to remain together, watch Matthew continue to grow up, grandkids somewhere in the future, um, continue to live in this great nation. We don't think about the, the difficulty that five particular terrorists put us through in concentrating on the negative of the terrorist actions. But we concentrate more on the grace of the Lord's actions. You know, I got a purple heart for stepping out of the men's restroom. And many of our men and women in uniform today earn their proper hearts by stepping out of this great nation into foreign danger zones. And Christ earned his purple heart stepping out of the perfection of heaven. And that's exactly why the term I am second and he is first so appropriate. My name is Brian Birdwell, and I'm second. We're so appreciative of the audio we just enjoyed. It's from the White Chair interview by I Am Second. And now we're so grateful to have Brian join us for our conversation on In Context. Let's go back to 2001, 11 September. You show up to work at the Pentagon. Yes, sir. I uh, settled in for what we expected to be a, a slow day without the, the principal and the deputy in to try to catch up on some of the work that uh, we expected to, you know, try to get done. And uh, about uh, 9 o'clock, I turn the TV on, and you see that huge gaping hole in the North Tower, the first tower hit. Commentators, you know, talking about, you know, the, what a terrible, tragic accident. And there's just that, that little voice pastor in, in, you know, your head going, you're praying it's an accident, but there's that just that, that hunch, that little voice in the back of your mind saying, you know, this doesn't smell right. About 15, 20 minutes later, that would be confirmed as, you know, the entire nation would watch on live TV the the second uh, plane, Flight 175, crashed into the South Tower at nearly 600 miles an hour. 
and that would confirm that it was not a normal day in our nation's life. We just uh, knelt down and just prayed that uh, as much as we love our first responders, it was going to be the Lord doing the bulk of the, the life-saving that day. When that prayer was over with, uh, we just continued to watch events unfold. I'd had my morning Coke that morning, that jolt of caffeine that all of us in the Pentagon need um, to uh, uh, to get through the day, or at least get the day started. And and uh, so about 9.35, I was going to step out and go to the men's restroom. I walked out into the E-ring hallway, and I, in fact, walked through what was about to be the crash site to go to the fourth quarter, went up to the men's restroom, took care of business, came out. As I'm walking back toward the E-ring, the corridors are the spokes that connect the rings, and I'm about to turn right uh, to, to go back through what would be the crash site is when Flight 77 makes impact at 530 miles an hour. So I'm 15 to 20 yards from where the nose of the fuselage makes impact with the building. And it is by God's grace that uh, I'm on the phone with you now 17 years later, having been the only survivor in the E-ring at the crash site and the closest person to survive at the initial impact point. You know, there's times people that will, you know, say, oh, you're such a lucky man. And I'm like, no, blessed is the right word. Because, look, the, the Army didn't make me the, the toughest guy in that building. You survive an 80-ton jet, make an impact at 530 miles an hour, run over 3,000 gallons of gas in it, because the toughest man to ever walked this earth 2,000 years ago is still sovereign in our lives. I'm alive today because of the great physician, uh, and I've been put back together by some exceptional physicians. And so uh, that's what happened that day. Well, and I would add a third person to that is uh, your incredible bride, Mel, who mm, absolutely. Um, left uh, the Washington Burn Center with 12 weeks. She left one night and uh, spent yeah. the rest of the time there fighting for you and for your care and... Um, as she told me, uh, God made her a pit bull for a reason, and that's the day she found out. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You know, Mel, Mel will tease sometimes. I can't remember the, which scripture it is, but, you know, we were we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And the, the joke was at times that, you know, the hospital staff would say, we got the fearful part down. Can we see the wonderful part now? <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, it's been a while since we told the story, but I it was nine twelve, I think. Uh, I took a metro and a cab to come see you, and I was approaching maybe a hundred yards to the entrance of the Washington Burn Center, and black SUVs uh, emerged from every angle. Uh, yeah. Marine One was landing on the hospital, and of course they shut down any access to civilians, and um, so I had yeah. to turn around and go back home. But um, there was a story that went, today we use the word viral on the Internet, yeah. where the commander-in-chief walked in and saluted a lowly Army uh, officer <laughs> who looked like uh, gauze from head to toe, who was in excruciating pain yeah. on wide-open morphine, could barely uh, talk, speak, uh, move, and the commander-in-chief allegedly preposterously saluted a lowly yeah. officer. And all this debate was going on in the media and uh, even 17 years ago. And just so happens you have a different perspective on that story. 
I I do. It, it it's a great story. Um, it, it, if I may add to some humor, because you know there's some hard things I'm sure we'll cover. But uh, that morning, Mel had gotten a call from uh, a 202 area code with the DC area code. Um, you know, Mrs. Birdwell, President, and Mrs. Bush would like permission to visit with you and your husband at the Washington Hospital Center. And not only was that a, a class act for for uh, the, the manner in which uh, the Secret Service agent was representing the president. Um, but, you know, whenever you get a call like that, you know, there, there's only one way to really respond. And uh, and Mel's first response was, how did you get my cell phone number? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, of course, the Secret Service agent said, ma'am, we're the Secret Service. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, uh, next so question. Mel said, yeah, next question. So Mel said, uh, absolutely, there's two phases of the burn center. There's ICU and step-down. In ICU, it's seven beds in a horseshoe uh, shape with the nurse's station at the uh, at the center of the horseshoe. I'm in room number six, and President and Mrs. Bush are visiting the other um, uh, the other survivors in order of, you know, room one uh, coming through. Uh, I am prepared for surgery or the what's called the tank a, a debridement session and it's a ghastly thing to experience um it's where you're scrubbed uh cleaned and and it has to be done to you for your survival because with the with burns when you your skin is your first line of defense in your immune system and with so much of it compromised your susceptibility to infection is is astronomical but what has to be done to you to keep you clean and and uh, and such? I mean, when you're being scrubbed in bleach and on occasion with no anesthesia, um, you know, people talk about waterboarding being brutal, and that's romper room compared to what you're going through in a burn unit. So I'm prepared for that. And so instead of being wrapped up, I have just sterile towels over me because the amount of time it takes to, to prepare you for that, they wanted to do that before the president's visit. So as the president is making his visits, um, Mrs. Bush comes in first. Uh, Mel is there with me. My nurse, Christy, is there. Uh, and then uh, Colonel Dane Rhoda, who was Mel's, for lack of a better term, casualty assistance officer, although I was not deceased. Um, and so Mrs. Bush comes in first and, and makes you know, the, the, uh, the greeting and the small talk. And I can't speak. I am conscious, but you know, I've got a trach in, covered up in, in the sterile towels. Mel's doing all the talking for me. Uh, Mrs. Bush asks about family and kids and pets and, and things like that and where we're from. And, of course, you know, Mel says, you know, uh, originally from Fort Worth, Texas. And, and Mrs. Bush's eyes light up, you know, well, we're from Texas, too, you know, from around Midland. And the little Texas happy dance. President Bush comes in shortly thereafter, uh, comes to the foot of the bed, renders the salute. And that is, is not customary. The only persons that the president has to initiate, to whom the president has to initiate a salute, is the uh, Congressional Medal of Honor winner. Um, otherwise, the president is always the, the, the senior man receiving uh, the salute. Uh, as he starts to drop his salute, he sees me slowly trying to return it. And I'm, Pastor, I'm doing this on instinct. I mean, they have, the burn center has ramped back, not on the pain med. Uh, and there's no such thing as a pain-free day in, in the burn center. But they've they've ramped down on the amnesiotics, like Versed and other things that just allow you to to forget what you're what you're enduring. 
um, they've ramped back on that. So I'm I'm conscious, but I am you know uh, I can only tell this story because Mel's told it so many times. The president starts to drop his salute, but stops, keeps his salute. And as I'm raising my right arm, since I'm not wrapped up, I just simply have sterile towels. I pull my right arm out from underneath the uh, uh, the towel, eventually falls away. And you can see the exposed bone, uh, some of the, the infection they're working on. I mean, the, the, the smell is horrible. I mean, it's probably the, the most gruesome way to, to receive a salute, but you've got a, a skinned alive, you know, uh, arm that uh, you're seeing returning the salute. I get, since I'm laying back in the bed, slightly canted up, you know, I get, you know, I can't bend very well, so I only get my arm uh, about half the way from my side to my head uh, and then and then drop it. Christy, my nurse, quickly covers it back up president's got tears in his eyes and uh and then drops his salute comes to the side of the bed and and uh president bush says you know it's colonel birdwell you're a great american this is not going to go unanswered and and uh, we're going to bring justice and and stop tolerating terrorism and president and mrs bush asked if they could pray for us uh and obviously you know mel said absolutely yes and president and mrs bush were very gracious uh stepped out uh the email went viral as as you said because really what what it substantively was about wasn't about the president saluting me it was about having a man in office that not only was god fearing as exodus 18:21 choose you righteous men such that fear god capable men that hate dishonest gain to be leaders of thousands hundreds fifties and tens i mean we're only 48 hours from the the day and the decisions before him, he knows he is going to have to make decisions that are going to put other American servicemen in the same circumstances in which he finds me. But he can either make that decision and risk those of us that, that have put on the uniform, or he can do nothing. And he'll keep making these visits, but there'll be civilians and American citizens living with the day-to-day -day of terror. You know, President Bush had such a weight on his shoulder. In fact, many few years later at, at retirement, we got to tell him how much we were praying for him. And, and he said, there's no way you can serve in office and not have people praying for you. The tasks are too daunting. The weight is too heavy to go it without the Lord. And uh, that's what that story is really about. Talk to us about some of the first things that go through your mind as you recall them, Brian. Yeah, well, when I heard the sound... I mean, it, it, the, the Pentagon was undergoing renovation and in, a, in the, the wedge that we were in. But, you know, the sound I heard was not a jackhammer. I mean, it was, I mean, I thought bomb. I mean, it was instantaneously deafening. I had that nanosecond to think bomb. And in the next nanosecond, I am tossed around like a rag doll with the concussion and the vacuum of the, uh, of the explosion. I'm set ablaze. Uh, the scars on my back look like what you would, you know, if you took a, a bucket of water and threw it against the wall and you see the initial splash and then the drip down that's what my uh what my back looks like in those moments i dealt with uh three types of pain first is the the physical pain of the burns i was burned on 60 percent of my body with about 40 percent being third degree burns my my arms from fingertip to armpit are completely grafted circularly circumferentially 
around both arms. My thumbs were reconstructed. My thumbs were, were still there, but with the burns to the webbing between the palm and the thumb, Dr. Jordan, it was like having a small little lobster claw. Basically, my thumb had been melted to my palm. And uh, Dr. Jordan had to go in and make incisions and graft and the like to give me something of an opposing thumb. Uh, my facial hair had been burned, hair, ears. My ears are artificial cartilage with my own skin grafted over. My eye sockets have been rebuilt, not the bone, but the, the actual skin around the eye. Just all kinds of you know injuries. My clothing in, in some places, uh, this will sound probably just wrong, but because the, it was so hot, uh, most of my clothes burned away immediately, particularly the polyester pants melted but i do have a few spots on my knees where the pants melted to the uh to the flesh so i've got scars on the knees that uh, from where that happened the second pain and emotion is really the one that defines the definition of terrorism that i'm facing a life-threatening injury i mean I, around me i can i can in, in the periphery of what i can see is black and in the immediacy of, of in the 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 apex of my my vision it's orange reddish haze with black in the periphery and as i'm struggling to get to my feet uh i come to that realization i mean this is this is a life-threatening injury because the the terrorism that grabs your heart that panic that that grabs you when you realize you are facing a life-threatening injury and you cannot escape the source of that injury. It's what we would expect the non-believer to feel when the soul passes from the body and they're set aside in darkness and no ability to navigate. I mean, that's the real terrorism. I mean, I was facing death and everybody that, that the Lord knits in the womb is built with that survival instinct and that desire for living. And there comes that moment in the hallway that, that was just seconds or a minute at most that I am struggling to get up. Uh, but I come to that realization. I mean, and it seemed like an eternity, uh, that struggle. But I came to that realization that that this was how the Lord was calling me home. And in a very, I mean, I screamed, Jesus, I'm coming to see you. It was not a, Lord, save me from this calamity. It was the recognition that I had, I had come to that point, that I accepted my death, and I did what we in the military are never trained to do, and that's quit, surrender. I collapsed to the floor, and in those moments, that that terror that of of dying such a death. Um, the darkness and the inability to navigate which way is to safety, which way is to danger. Um, I mean, there's just there's no words in the English language that I can that I can give you now that that will give uh, give the right level of rigor to the the panic in your heart when you're facing that. And I collapsed to the floor. The third thing that I thought about is as I lay there waiting for that feeling of the soul departing the body. And I was absolutely ready, not just in the sense of my salvation from age 10 back in 1971, but I was, this, again, uh, the believer will understand this, but the, 
in that moment that I was ready for the Lord, you know, to take my take my life, and I was about to be standing in his presence, I had done a 180 from the calamity and the terror of trying to survive. But once I'd stepped over that line of accepting my death, that this is in fact how I was going to die, there was nothing but peace and quiet and the silence of knowing and the security of where I was going to spend my eternity and whose throne I was about to be standing in, uh, in front of. It really is the definition of the peace that passes all understanding. It was tragic that it took such a calamitous event for me to understand that peace. As I lay there waiting for that feeling of the soul departing the body, I also thought about Mel and Matt and how I'd said goodbye to them that morning and the permanency of death and that I was not going to see them in this world uh, again, uh, that the next time I would see them would be in eternity. And um, that's hard, you know, thinking about what news they were going to get. As I lay there waiting for that feeling of the soul departing the body, it never came. But uh, I was able to use the wall that I'd been blown up against. The sprinkler system had extinguished the flame that was consuming me. And as I lay face down, I mean, this is going to get graphic, Pastor, but as I lay face down, I opened my eyes. I could I could feel liquid down the left side of my face. It was cold. It was It was the sprinkler system. And look, that in and of itself is its own miracle. When you looked at the damage done to the building, as the uh, the building material shrapnel that's everywhere, uh, the bulk of the Pentagon that had to be replaced was due to water damage. While there's a, a impact area, there's a burn area, but the, the amount of flooding, because the, the aircraft makes penetration of three of the five rings, it destroys the first and second floor sprinkler system pipes. And so there's just water pouring into the into the, the damaged area. Um, and so I used the open my eyes, and it was in the corridor. Each, each of the corridors is about 100 yards long. It's the spokes that connect the rings. And when I opened my eyes, I'm at ground level. In the distance, I could not see the light bulbs, because remember, the smoke is filling up the hallway. But I could see the light toward the A-ring. The A-ring is the innermost ring of the Pentagon. Um, and you could see the light reflecting off the tile. You couldn't see the light in the ceiling. So it would be a lot like if you're a ship at sea and you can't see the bulb of the lighthouse because of either immense fog or, or whatever, but you can see the reflection of the light off the surface of the water. That's what it, That's what it was like inside there. But now I have directional control. I use the wall that I was blown up against to, to stand up, and I begin staggering down that hallway. And I cover about 30 yards or so, and my leather shoes are still intact. My belt is still around me with pieces of my pants in the in the front and where the belt loops, uh, not, you know, or the, the uh, it's a leather belt, but I'd had... Um, the portion of my pants underneath it as I laid face down, the back side of me is burning away. Um, that's all gone. I, so I've got a burn scar that runs across the top of the shoulders and, and the like. There's flesh hanging off my arms. I can already feel my eyes swelling shut. I know I've got to get the medical care and, 
and get there quickly. I'm staggering down the hallway, and as I'm coming out of the the damage area where there's still fire and other things, uh, there's debris all around me. And that was another one of the miracles, Pastor, is with all the building shrapnel flying around from the explosion, uh, I did not have any puncture wounds from any of that. I assume I would have eventually staggered down to that fire door and either, you know, Lord willing, you know, some fire emergency person, you know, fireman or such, open that thing up and get me. Otherwise, I've either succumbed to my wounds or to smoke inhalation. Bill, Roy, Chuck, and John in there, the immediacy of the situation is such that we've got to move Brian. They'll carry me through the B-ring door they came out of, through an A-ring access door, and I'll be taken to the intersection of the 5th and 6th quarter at the A-ring at at a place that was called Redskin Snack Bar, and that'll become the hasty triage site. And there's a wonderful lady from the Navy, Natalie Ogletree, kneels down with me. We say the Lord's Prayer, the 23rd Psalm. She reads the 91st Psalm over me. Dr. Baxter will, will give me my first medical care, and I'm the first person of the five or six of us that have been collected there. I'm the first person he treats, and in all my you know, years of casualty evacuations and, and the like on the battlefield, you know, the, the most serious are treated first, and that tells me just how bad it is. I'm in charge of my mental faculties, but not my physical. I'm trembling violently. Dr. Baxter, because I am so charred, whether it's what's actually burned, what's covered in soot from the smoke, uh, Dr. Baxter takes off my shoes, and then the remnant of the sock that is not burned Above the ankle, above the line of the, the ankle of the shoe, all that, that sock's all burned away. I've got some scar marks on the on the ankles, but the shoes have been protecting uh, my feet. When he takes the leather shoes off, he takes the remainder of the sock off, and he'll put uh, a shot of morphine in the right foot. He'll put the IV in the left, because my feet are the only place he can see where the veins are, because uh, it's the only thing that's unburned and still clean. I'll be evacuated out of the building an hour and 10 minutes after impact. I'll get to the emergency room at Georgetown. One of the other miracles of, of recognizing that God's in charge is that I'm the only casualty taken to Georgetown that day. And it's just the Lord's divine providence in directing my path that day. The attending physician at Georgetown's emergency room is Dr. Michael Williams. And Dr. Williams would spend two years in a trauma fellowship prior to his assignment at, at Georgetown, working for Dr. Jordan at the uh, uh, the Washington Hospital Center. And Dr. Jordan, of course, as you know, is the director of the burn unit. And so from the perspective of emergency room care, I have the third best burn doctor available to me in the Georgetown emergency room. And that's providential because upon my arrival, uh, they'll immediately wheel me in and Dr. Williams will do not just the things that have to be done in an emergency room for, that are standard, you know, airway, breathing, circulation, because usually after those three things are stabilized, then you're evacuated to specialized care. But because of the nature of the weapons used that day and the calamity that that national event was, the FAA has already shut down all airspace in the United States. There's no medevac helicopters flying. Everything's grounded, and I'll remain at Georgetown for about five hours 
and because of Dr. Williams' training with Dr. Jordan, he'll not only do airway, breathing, and circulation, but he'll begin to do the very brutal things that have to be done, the escherotomy, the excisions. Uh, it's a very agonizing things. Brian, two things I want to cover broad stroke. I want to talk about your journey with pain and suffering and then forgiveness, because you and I have had that conversation on and off for the years. Boy, your question's piercing, because I, I haven't had to talk about this in a while, but there were a lot of moments of alone with the Lord that I pleaded for him to finish what the terrorists had started. And I've done a lot of hard things in my life. You know, it comes with the territory of being in the military. But I will just put it this way. Before September 11th, I mean, I've been a believer for decades before September 11th. But when you read the crucifixion account in the Gospels, it's almost generic. Once you've lived such a high-intensity pain event, whether it's the flogging, the, the nails, the the hanging, the crucifixion is just a ghastly event that we as Christians just tend to read through like, you know, it, it yeah, it happened and and you know, the Lord sacrificed his life and I mean in Gethsemane, Christ knows what he's about to face and he's asking the Father to pass the cup because he knows what's ahead of him. When you're dealing with that kind of suffering and that kind of pain uh, to the point that you you covet death, you know, I only had a minute or two to think about my death in that building, Pastor. But Christ had all eternity before he ever arrived on earth uh, to know the death he was going to die, and yet he still came. Mel and I, when we've had the opportunity to visit with, with servicemen, whether they were burned or, or injured, not only to say thank you, but to just encourage, Second Corinthians tells us to comfort others as we were comforted. And I had either, you know, firemen or or other soldiers that had been burned that would, you know, come tell me and, and show me their injuries and how functionally they were. And, you know, there's a lot of life left to be lived. And that's what Mel and I would try to do is I'd come beside the survivor. Mel would come beside the spouse. Let me tell you, that is as brutal an experience for the spouse. The pain is all emotional as opposed to physical, but I can't imagine what it's like for a parent to watch their child go through this. I mean, you know, we've seen, you know, a little four-year-old boy that, you know, in a child abuse circumstance was, was set afire. Only a fallen sinful world, anybody can think that's a, a something to do. And you just try to encourage. I mean, you can walk into that hospital room and, and know what that individual is going through. And it's it's no different than the cancer survivor coming alongside the the cancer patient, uh, you know, that we've walked that same dark road. Forgiveness is is the hardest thing, Pastor. I uh, had great pastoral care with you and Jack Elwood to help me make sure that I responded to this this personal affront and personal injury and attack on our nation the right way. Because as a soldier, I wanted to be on the battlefield being that instrument of justice for the enemies that are foreign to us, just like law enforcement is on the battlefield uh, for those that don't conduct themselves within the standards of our society. But government bears that sword against those who would do evil. It would be much easier if the five individuals that crashed that plane 
uh, into the Pentagon were still alive and could come to me and say, based upon our repentance, we ask your forgiveness because we see the error of our ways and repent, you know, to turn away from what they believe to be a completely rational act uh, to recognizing that, that, you know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes in the Father but by me. To repent from their belief in the Muslim faith to the Christian faith, it'd be so much easier for me to forgive. But we're not asked to forgive based upon how easy it would be. We're asked to forgive because it's the right thing to do, even though those five individuals are not here to ask that. We've had this conversation about justice, that the government uh, bears a sword for reason. A sword cuts two ways. It cuts to deal justly, and it cuts to administer mercy. But we know as believers, being you know citizens of two kingdoms, the kingdom of men and the kingdom of God, more importantly, we're, we're juxtaposed. And so, and again, you and I have had this conversation Senator, uh, it'd be easy to want justice and not a pound, but thousands of pounds of flesh under the auspices of government has that responsibility. But deep down in Brian Birdwell's heart, how do you forgive? Oh, boy. I I don't know that I have, Pastor. I'm specific to the to the uh, to the five individuals. Um, I know that on a day-to-day basis, I mean, I'm very blessed. You know, I've gotten to see, you know, Matt graduate from high school and college, get married. We now have a grandson just like you do. Yours is Isaac. Ours is Elijah. Um, Mel and I on a day-to-day basis have always concentrated on on the the, the blessings that the Lord's given me in a, in a, a second life here on earth, so to speak. And the things that we've, you know, the major muscle movements of life that we've gotten to see in the last 17 years. What I'm not prepared to forgive is as a citizen, I'm not prepared to forgive the culture that bred, recruited, trained, and deployed, and financed people that hate us, they hate our beliefs, and they hate what our nation stands for. Government's duty is to protect me from that culture. There's a culture out there that loves death. Um, and government's continued mission to do so is absolutely appropriate. Um, But as an individual, my duty is to model my faith, and I am as sinful before the Lord as everybody else, Pastor, but making sure that I respond wearing both hats, the, the kingdom of men hat as a citizen sworn to uphold the Constitution of the United States and the state of Texas, as well as the role model of being a believer and a member of the kingdom of the Lord, to execute both of those to the best of my ability. And over time, my appreciation for what the Lord has done for Mel and I has grown. And my anger at the five individuals that crashed that plane, I think about the events that day on a daily basis. I don't think about them on a daily basis. Is that what forgiveness looks like? Probably not. I I can't stand up and, you know, I have forgiven those five men. Let me ask you this. And, you know, Cindy and I, not unlike you and Mel, have dealt with a lot of people that have suffered injustice, a divorce, a lawsuit. Um, They've lost a loved one in a crime, 
on and on we could go on the list. Oh, yeah. And yeah. at some point, is it fair to say, unless the Holy Spirit works in yours and my hard head and hearts, forgiveness is impossible. And that's I something. Think that's a fair statement, yes, sir. And I think Cindy and I wrestle with that in, in friends and our own experience as well. Is at some point I have to turn the page on this. I agree with you. You're, you'll never probably not think about 9 11. You'll never not be overwhelmed by uh, patriotic events or those who disrespect our country or the military, just as you and I have yeah. the same reaction to. Yet we're fallen creatures in a fallen world, and who are we to say, I mean, goodness, he forgave Michael Easley, and he forgave Brian Birdwell a long time ago. And yeah. that, to me, has got to be the center, Brian. I don't know about you, but I've got to come back to that. I deserve, you know, the ground at the cross is level. Yeah. And for yeah, those evil... control point. Yeah. yeah. And for those <laughs> evil perpetrators, and, of course, you and I are politically way incorrect to call them evil perpetrators, but those who are a culture of death and violence and harming, um, they are going to have a justice with the maker. And more importantly, the living, the land of the living, you and me, uh, how we live. And, and just, and I appreciate and I applaud your candor. It is hard to humanly forgive someone. Cindy and I were in a, a church service over the summer attending a local church here that we've grown to love. And uh, a man just gave a little um, Lord's Supper overview, and he talked about uh, being angry at his son and being angry at his parents for injustices that they had perpetrated against him. And he goes, all week long he was mad, and uh, a little thing happened in his, his week, and he realized as he was drinking a cup of coffee in the morning, you know, I can either go to court fighting the injustice or I can go to the cross. Yeah. And Cindy and I looked at each other and went, man, that's a sermon. Because you and I, can, we can yeah. stand for all the reasons things were wrong, the injury. Uh, you live with chronic pain. You live with continued surgeries, limitations, challenges. Mel lives with the emotional, psychological affect of caring for a husband for all these years. Matt's dad is not the dad he once had. On and on we yeah. could go at the list. I can go to court, God, make this right. Or I can go to the cross and go, you made it right. I deserve death and hell. And by your kind grace, you saved me. And you and I both want yeah. to be overwhelmed with that cross. But, man, we like the courtroom. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, in the fervor of, of the events of that day, there were so many parallels to, to Pearl Harbor and the entrance to World War II. If I may use a more up-to-date analogy, I tell you that it pains my heart with what many of the players in the NFL are doing. I've got friends buried in Arlington. Uh, I've got friends wearing, uh, you know, similar stars. Many men and women that I never knew that whether it was World War II, World War One. You know, Vietnam, Korea, we can go down the list of the places in which we fought for earthly freedom. You know, I wear the scars of the price of living in the greatest nation on this earth. And Christ wears the scars of the eternal price of freedom. Now, I know which one's more important. Eternity is more important than our nation because it is everlasting. But, I mean, it, 
it just hurts, you know, to see the the disrespect of our of our nation and the contempt for it. Let me ask you this: uh, My daughter Hannah Seymour oft reminds me, Dad, you can criticize, and that's fine, uh, people that disagree with you, but Senator, how do we help them? Because we could jump on this. And you and I would tag team, and we'd be happy with each other. <laughs> we, we could talk about the disrespect of the nation, the flag. They don't understand. They don't know history. I mean, why, 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 why? Okay, how do we help them, Senator? Because just pointing out our differences and just disagreeing with them and saying, you don't understand the price of freedom. Let's just say that's true. Turn the page, Brian. How do you and I and others who love Christ, who love our country, and, and, and just as a sidebar, you know, our time in Northern Virginia, Washington, D.C., when we were there, um, yeah. you know, it was men and women like you who changed Cindy's and my worldview because we were, you know, little Texans who loved Jesus and politics was there. I mean, we voted. We didn't really care. Yeah. All the politicians were liars. We didn't really know the military. <laughs> but then when we got to know men and women like you who love Christ first and love country second and wanted to make a difference, and I know you well enough, you went into the army for that reason. You wanted to make a difference for not just the country, but for Christ and the country. So all that preamble, how do we help them, Brian? Sounds trite, maybe, but prayer. I guess what makes it so hard for me, I mean, you, you mentioned forgiveness. You know, we have enemies of our nation that attacked us that day and wanted to kill us. I got it. When I see folks that don't love the country the same way we do and what it stands for, and with all our faults as a nation, I mean, what other nations have thrown off slavery? What other nations have, have paid the price to, to, to get things right? And oh, by the way, what has been the fundamental foundational spirit of getting rid of those evils? It's been a Christian worldview. So I think prayer, I mean, we pray for it every day, Pastor. Now and I pray for the Lord to pour his spirit out upon this nation. Because I fear for, for what I see in our nation and its self-destruction. Our problems are not going to be solved politically. Our problems are going to be solved spiritually. Thanks, Senator Birdwell. So appreciate you being on the broadcast. Also, we want to thank I Am Second for allowing us to use the audio portion of Brian Birdwell's story. Check out IamSecond.com for many more great interviews. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.